Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 16th, we are studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. St. Paul concludes his first epistle to the Thessalonians with a prayer for their continued perseverance in the Christian faith, as well as other brief instructions concerning his letter. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you. So, Pastor Hemmer, we're here at the end of this epistle as, as we prepare to read these verses here at the end. Give us a rundown of, of what we've seen in the letter and how Paul gets to this point. Yeah, so Paul has, uh, has taken a really long runway. He's, he's done a lot of groundwork to, to build up to the point where he can give the exhortations to the Thessalonians that he does that really don't start until the beginning of chapter 4. So the first... The first three verses, or the first three chapters, have been Paul's history with the Thessalonians, the thanksgiving that he has for them because of the faith that they have, because of the endurance in the faith that they have, because of their their boldness in confessing the faith uh, and in in staying with the faith, even even despite threats from outside. Paul's desire to be there in person, and then the report that he gets from Timothy that, in fact, things haven't gone off the rails. The uh, the Thessalonians have retained the Lord's gift of faith, um, and this gives great encouragement to Paul. And then you come to chapter 4, uh, which Paul begins saying, finally then, brothers, but this really is, it sort of seems to be the heart of what Paul has been getting to. And you have uh, for the duration of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5, these exhortations from Paul that sort of center on the imminence of the return of Jesus. Because Jesus is returning soon. He, the crucified, risen, ascended Lord, who will return, in what sort of way ought we conduct ourselves while we wait. And so Paul has a, a whole host of exhortations, and those exhortations sort of reach their climax right before where we are, are going to pick up this morning with verse 23 with just these sort of staccato command words over and over. Respect, esteem, be at peace, admonish, encourage, help, be patient, uh, it, it's just this list of what Christians in Thessalonica and then beyond ought to be doing while they await for the return of the Lord Jesus, how they live lives of faith towards one another for the good of the church um, and for their retaining the Lord's gift of faith until he returns. And then 23 through the end is just the conclusion to, to all of this that he has done. And, and compared with the sort of long runway that it takes him to, to get to the point that he makes, these exhortations that begin in chapter 4, the conclusion feels really kind of brief. It, it does feel brief, and it's, it's one of those parts of Scripture that I think sometimes we skip over without giving it too much thought, almost like, well... It, we, when, when we write letters today, there's a, a sincerely, and or in Christ, or however you sign, and then you sign your name, and that's it. And a lot of times you just kind of glance at that, and, and that's that. Right. And sometimes I, I think we treat a text like this in that same manner. It, it doesn't often show up in the lectionary, these parts of Paul's epistles. And sometimes in our 
our readings through of the scriptures, whether we're reading the a whole book at once or the scriptures straight through in a year, we just kind of gloss over it as if, well, we know what that says, so let's just move on. What's the, I mean, and you even said, you know, that the climax was right before this, and here's the conclusion. What's What's the benefit? What's what's here theologically? And I know we're going to unpack that, but what's the benefit from paying a bit closer attention to this section? Well, uh, I think you've got the hope uh, for the for the Christian who's just listened to this long litany of of what he ought to be doing. That certainly can get pretty discouraging when you think, "Gosh, I don't rejoice always. I I certainly don't pray without ceasing." not giving thanks in all circumstances. Um, it's easy to, to hear this, you know, rapid-fire list of what you ought to be doing and think, well, what what hope then is there for me? And so for uh, an appropriate conclusion to this long, you know, nearly two full chapters of exhortation, uh, Paul will direct you to the only one who can accomplish those good works within you. And so it, it really is, it's short and it's sweet, and it, it ties all of that up with, with the believer's hope that the source of his sanctification is in, is in the one who wills his sanctification from the beginning, in the one who has given him the gift of faith, and he will see it all to its completion. So he's giving some hope in in light of the law that he's preached, which certainly he intends as exhortation and encouragement to do these things, yet we know the law always accuses. When we hear these things, we see how we don't do them. And so here at the end, he's going to give them hope and, and recognize, teach them, that the Lord is the one who accomplishes these things. It is his doing, as, as we will see. Let's go ahead and, and read the text. This is 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There is the conclusion to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 28. So, Pastor Hemmer, it, it seems that, that Paul here begins this conclusion with a prayer for the Thessalonians. We've heard him pray for the Thessalonians previously in the letter. What is his prayer for the Thessalonians here at the end of his letter? So the prayer at the end is that they they would not be in the way of the God who intends their sanctification. So this this I mean we understand it it's not we who accomplish any of our sanctification and and this flows directly from our justification. In fact, I had a, a professor at seminary say that sanctification is really just getting used to our justification. It's learning to believe about ourselves what God believes and knows to be true. We, we talk about the distinction between uh, being at, at the same time saint and sinner, which is really true from our perspective, but not true from God's perspective. As he looks at us, he doesn't, he doesn't see sin anymore. He knows, he sees a truer reality, and that is that all of our sins have been given to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and they're all paid for by him. He is eternally pleading our case before the Father's throne. He is our advocate in the divine courtroom, and because we are justified, we, we are also then sanctified. Because we are made right and able to stand before God because we have the forgiveness of sins, it also, in, in removing all of our sin, all that we are left with, really, is, is faith and the fruit of faith, the good works that follow. So this prayer then um, commends the Thessalonians to, to the care of him 
who accomplishes all of this, who accomplishes our salvation by having sent his Son, and who accomplishes our preservation in that salvation and the fruit of, of good works that follow because of that salvation. So you'll see that 23, the, the prayer that Paul has there, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul answers with the Amen in, in verse 24. That is, God who has called you is faithful and he will surely do it. That's the, that's the yes to the prayer. That's the amen to the prayer that Paul, that, that Paul prays for the Thessalonians. God will absolutely, without any reservation, without any question, sanctify you completely. In, in him, in Christ, your sanctification is already complete. It's, it's really a matter of, of learning to believe it, and learning to see ourselves in the way that God the Father in Christ sees us, and that is as holy and as sinless. Hmm. Dig, dig into that a little bit more. That was one of the questions that I had concerning this text, where it says, sanctify you completely. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, this complete sanctification that Paul prays for, and he says the Lord will accomplish, that doesn't mean that your life is going to be free from sin, like the actual sins, the evil things you do, the good things you fail to do. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about this idea, as you said, getting used to your justification, right? I mean, is, is that, is, is that what, can you dig into that a little bit more, Pastor Hammer? Well, I, I think the answer um, is, is sort of yes to both of those. Now, we don't, we don't mean to say that in this life, there will be a point at which a Christian can say, aha, I have I've finally attained complete sanctification. I no longer sin. I no longer have to grapple with temptation. But, but there is, in Christ, complete sanctification available for anyone. And, and that complete sanctification comes through saving faith in Jesus. So it it is I mean it's a paradox. It is already ours, but we don't completely realize it. We don't completely see that that total sanctification until the day when our Lord Jesus returns, until he calls our dead or dying bodies from the grave. Then then we will see the way things truly are. Now we see we see a distortion of reality. In baptism, God says, you are mine. Therefore, all of your sins are given to Jesus, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Those are all given to Jesus, and they all belong to him and not to you anymore. And he answered for all of them in his death on the cross. And the faith that I give to you in the waters of baptism in the word of absolution, in the hearing of the gospel, in the ongoing reception of the means of grace, the forgiveness that I give is perfect and complete. No sin is excluded, all sin is removed, and therefore all that remains is complete and perfect sanctification. But, but we don't, you can't ever look at your life and see that. You can only believe that because you hear it. And you hear it always in the gospel. You hear it always, like we're in the season of Advent now, where you've got John the Baptist pointing to the Christ, saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you believe that, then you believe that, that your sin has all been given to him, and, and whatever remains is completely sanctified and completely holy because he has removed every impurity, every blemish, every sin, and all that remains is pure and complete holiness. But you'll never so see this, that. You'll never okay, see that so, on, on this side of the resurrection. Right. So, so the complete sanctification that we have right now is ours. It is truly ours. It is ours by faith. We can't see it. On the yeah. last day, 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Paul, that's where his prayer in verse 23 ends, then on that day we will see that complete sanctification that has been ours all along. Is, is that, does that summarize exactly. it pretty well? That, that okay. is exactly it. Yes. Then, then we will see and, and be fully seen and know and be fully known the reality mm-hmm. that is already true, even though we can't see it yet. We still see things through through the veil of our broken flesh, and that and that sees sin when we look at our own lives. And so then properly, what what do we do with sin? What do we do with sanctification that feels a million miles away from being complete? Well, we do what what is proper to be done with sin always, and that is we bring it to the Lord in confession, and we hear His declaration, His word of absolution which just takes us back to baptism. And, and it's there in baptism that we have that lifetime of forgiveness that we will finally see when the Lord Jesus raises us from the dead. Is, is, that, is there something in this conversation then as to why Paul would pray specifically saying, may the God of peace? Is there a connection there to this, this complete sanctification that, that Paul would here name him the God of peace? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Peace comes from the cessation of hostility that that is inherently there between sinners and a holy God. There there can be no peace between those who are rebellious against him by their very natures and then who also commit an active rebellion against him and, and a God who all along has commanded his people to be holy as he is holy. So God, God's creation in the Garden of Eden was, was one of peace. There was peace and unity between mankind and his creator. But that peace is lost. It's, it's gone as soon as sin enters into the world and man rebels against God. So it's, it's in, in the same way Paul is he's taking you back to that eschatological hope that, that the Christian has for the complete cessation of hostility between sinful human beings and a holy God. And the peace that God establishes, we have now in, in the forgiveness of sins, we have now in, in his means of grace, we will have completely then in the resurrection from the dead and the leaving behind of our sinful flesh in, in the grave eternally. So peace really, really captures all of that. Um, it, it captures our justification. It captures our sanctification. It captures the Lord's ongoing work in his church, in his means of grace. To, to reconcile us to himself. The means by which he reconciles us to himself is, is the substitutionary death of his son on the cross, the propitiation that obtains peace for us. So all of those ways of speaking about salvation fit kind of under this umbrella word, peace. So for Paul to say, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, is a prayer that, that points forward as well to that eschatological hope of, of the restoration of creation to the way that God intended it to be in the garden, to the way that it would have been apart from mankind's sin. Peace is really, it's the way God's creation is intended to function. Creatures living together in peace, man and God living together in peace, peace sort of pervading, and it's it's not the kind of sort of anemic understanding of, of peace that, that we have um, when we think peace, you know, like the, the term from the hippies in the 70s or the peace sign or whatever, um, peace is, is really the whole way that creation is intended, intended to function. It's the Lord's shalom. It's, it's the way everything functions properly in peace. And so that fits perfectly with, with what Paul is speaking of, a 
complete sanctification. Well, complete sanctification is part of the Lord's design for his creation, the Lord's peace for his creation. So this, I, I, like, I like the way you put that out there, that this is everything functioning properly as the Lord intended the, the concept of shalom, as, as the Israelites understood it, I think is very helpful. And I think it, it helps us to grapple a little bit with that other part of verse 23 that maybe strikes our ears a bit odd, where Paul says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. And, and there's been some conversation in the, in the history of Christianity over this matter of spirit and soul and body. It's different, I think, than the way I normally talk about these things. Normally when I talk about a person, I talk about body and soul, two things. Here Paul says spirit, soul, body. But given what you've been saying, Pastor Hammer, I, I don't think that we are intended to take this as some sort of scientific laying out of, of what it means to be a person. Rather, maybe Paul's doing something a bit different. Can you can you enlighten us a little bit on this idea of what, what does Paul mean when he says spirit, soul, and body? I think this is a way for Paul of, of speaking of the whole person. So you have sort of three three dimensions here, and to exclude any one of them would be a diminishment of, of the picture of, of a whole person that Paul has in mind. But so, in, in the same way that, that Jesus summarizes the, the commands, um, the first three commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, what is similar to what Paul is doing here is a way of saying the whole person, spirit, soul, body, all, all the parts that, that the Creator has, has given to a person working peacefully, functioning together as a whole person who has been sanctified, made holy and free from sin, living in the new creation as, as the Creator intends. It seems to me that, that there's, there's less of a way to sort of make any dogmatic statement about what a person is, or to say, well, what is what is his spirit versus what is his soul, um, and and to say that the way in which Paul puts these together, um, following that your whole spirit, um, your whole soul, your whole body, the the way he puts them all together like that is a way of of referring to the whole person, all parts functioning together. In, in the very same way that, that Jesus, you know, your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole life is intended to love the Lord your God. So then Paul gives the amen, as you said. I like that way of putting it, the amen to his prayer in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And I, I, find, this, I find this helpful to keep in mind because we often think of our justification, as you said. This is all God's work right? But sometimes we don't think of our sanctification in that way as well. And yet Paul very clearly says that your sanctification, your being made holy, this also is God's work. With about, no, just under three minutes here before the break, Pastor Hemmer, take us into that amen that Paul speaks in verse 24. Yeah, so there's no uh, speculation as to whether God will actually fulfill this prayer that Paul has to conclude this letter to the, the Thessalonians. Paul moves right away from the prayer into this statement of faith. The one who has called you is faithful. And if he is faithful, if he, if he never breaks his promises, if he never reneges on his word, if he is faithful, completely faithful, and, and has promised all of this, then if your faith is in him, you can be certain he will do it. So none of it, not even your sanctification depends upon you. It depends upon the one who has called you. And it depends not on your faithfulness, but on his. And because he is faithful, he will certainly do it, certainly accomplish it. This is, this is why I, I alluded, or I mentioned that quotation earlier about sanctification just being, used, being a matter of getting used to our justification. That when we believe about ourselves what God declares to be true, 
You are sinless, you are holy, you are good, you are righteous, then we will begin to act in accordance with his will. We will begin to act in accordance with the sanctification, the being made holy that he is is working in our lives. And the question is not about how faithful are you. The question is about how faithful is the one who has called you into the faith, the one who has called you into the life of a Christian, the one who has called you into his church. Is he faithful? Absolutely. No question, no doubt about God's faithfulness. If he is faithful, then he will do it. And so what what it is a matter of, uh, sanctification, is just getting out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Letting, letting my will submit to the will of the one who has called me in holy baptism. He wills my perfect sanctification. He wills my life to be lived according to his commands. He wills my life to function in, in the kind of peace that he intends for all creatures to have. And he is faithful, and he will do it. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUL. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, December 16th, as we are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, with Pastor Jeff Hemmer of Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we just had a, a few minutes beforehand to, to look at this, verse 24 particularly, that it's not about my faithfulness, it's about God's faithfulness, and knowing that He is faithful, He will accomplish my sanctification. And, and as, as you said, that, that's an idea that maybe many of us haven't really thought too hard about. We think about God doing the justifying. We don't always consider God doing the sanctifying. Get us a little bit more on that topic before we move on here. Yeah, I think a lot of times the way we conceive of sanctification is that now, now that we've been brought into the ring, we've, we've been justified, Uh, Now sanctification becomes this kind of tag-team effort between me and the Holy Spirit, where he will do what I cannot, but I have to do my part, and I will do what he doesn't need me to do. And um, it's this weird 50-50 cooperation between me and the Holy Spirit to to make me holy. But but holy is is a declaration from, from God about a person that he is, in the same way, righteous and able to stand before God, that he is, in, in all of his being and doing, he is as God created him to be. And that, I can have no part in making myself holy, in, in doing the sanctification. Sure, I do the works, but I, I don't do them in order to be holy. I do them because... God the Holy Spirit has made me holy. And so everything everything depends purely upon him and not upon my cooperation, um, not upon my working towards being holy, but even, even the good works that, that follow as the fruit of faith are, are the product of being made holy by God the Holy Spirit himself. So that... Everything, at the end of every single day, my justification depends upon God, my sanctification depends upon God, it's all 100% Him and and 0% me, and if there's been any good that I have been permitted to do throughout the day, I can simply be thankful to God for all of that and not fall asleep with my, or, or try to fall asleep with my stomach tied up in knots about whether I really did my sanctification today, in the same way that 
there, there's no Lutheran insomniacs when it comes to justification, so there, there should be no Lutheran insomniacs who have to stay awake at night wondering whether they really did the sanctification thing today or not. No, Paul says, the one who called you is faithful. He has done it, he is doing it, and he will do it. Full stop. Hmm. And, and I think then that that really provides us a transition into verse 25 because Paul has just gotten done praying this for the Thessalonians and then he asks them to pray for him almost like okay I've I've prayed this for you please also pray this for me or, or for us right there's also Timothy and Sylvanus there with him who are, right. who are writing this letter but I, I think that I mean so is that part of then why Paul would ask them to pray for him in that same vein, that the yeah, Lord would think, keep him faithful also? I, I think absolutely. Think, think about the way Paul's uh, sort of fatherly affection for the Thessalonians as, as having been made Christians through, through his uh, begetting them by proclaiming the faith to them. This is a, an illustration of, of Paul's pastoral ministry, not just in Thessalonians, but throughout his epistles, I became a father to you in preaching Christ to you. And and a couple times earlier in the letter, Paul has held himself up as an example to be imitated um, in the same way fathers hold themselves up as examples to be imitated to their children, whether they intend to or not, their children will, will emulate them. Now Paul has this this litany of things to do, he commends them completely to God, and then he says, also pray for us. Um, that is, we, we occupy this office not, not because of our own sufficiency, uh, but we occupy it because we have been placed into it, because God has given us this privilege of preaching the gospel to you, proclaiming Christ to you for your own life now and your eternal life. And so we need the same kind of prayers that, that we offer for you. So that who, who accomplishes Paul's ministry? Well, who accomplishes the sanctification of the Thessalonians? Again, it's not the Thessalonians who do their sanctification. It's not Paul who makes his ministry successful it is God alone who sees to the success of, of all of, of what he accomplishes in his church. So it's sort of a, a reflexive kind of prayer. I have prayed for you. You also offer this prayer to me. And give me the same amen that I gave to you. Say also to me, the one who calls you is faithful. The one who has made you an apostle is faithful. And he, and not you, will do it. I'm reminded of the of the salutation that we speak in church to one another as pastor and people, where we we I think right we pray for each other. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. A very a very similar moment, perhaps, as to what Paul is is doing here with the Thessalonians, which which that leads a bit into my next question. Then, as as the letter concludes, it seems you get some references to worship service, or or at least that's the way I've often taken them. At the end of Paul's epistles, you get the feeling that these were read as a part of a, a worship service. To I mean, a, a gathering, right, of the Thessalonians, which, well, where do Christians gather? They gather around the means of grace. So so can you take us a bit now, Pastor Hammer, into these, these last couple verses where maybe it seems a bit disjointed, but as Paul gives these sort of just ending instructions, what what's going on here at the end? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful insight, the, the connection between that very old part of the liturgy, uh, which, which happens three times, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, as, and it's not just a kind of wish uh, that I wish the Lord would be with you and, and with thy spirit, but it is, it is a performative word. When the pastor in his office, speaking not with his own authority, but with the authority of Christ, says, the Lord be with you, the Lord is with you. And then the church responds, and with thy spirit, um, as a way of 
of confirming to the man the, the Holy Spirit who was given to him at his ordination. And then just as an aside, you see that, that he, he says this, this exchange happens three times in the service before the sort of most intimidating things that a pastor might do, before he offers a prayer on behalf of everyone, before he consecrates bread to be the body of Jesus and, and wine to be the blood of Jesus with the authority of Jesus, before he speaks that, that blessing that God gave to Aaron as a way of putting his name upon the people. The pastor, you know, his knees start to knock when and, and his mouth dries up when he starts to think about the seriousness of what he's about to do. And so, you know, he turns around from the altar, he speaks the Lord's peace and presence onto his people, and then they respond in kind as a way of affirming uh, the spirit that's given to him at his ordination, that he, go ahead, man, do the things you're authorized to do. And so I think there is kind of a, a liturgical function to, to these greetings at, at the very conclusion of the letter. So that's, that's what Paul will say next. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Um, and so scholars think that this is, this is a kind of um, reconciliation between Christians um, within within the context of the liturgy, that that this is it's not just a, a greeting on the street, but it is the greeting of of two sinners reconciled to one another because they're reconciled to to God the Father as well. Um, in the same way that we might um, greet one another with with the peace of Christ, this holy kiss. And I, Paul ends um, a couple other books. Uh, with this similar exhortation to, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, the book of Romans, First um, Corinthians, at least, um, maybe Second Corinthians too, so that uh, it, it sets the, the hearing of the Word of God, which Paul understands his, his apostolic word, himself having been, called and sent by the Lord Jesus himself to have an authority to it such that it can be read in the, the assembly of Christians who gather together to hear the word of God, this letter should be read among them. He understands the, the authority that what he writes is not just the word of Paul, but it is the word of the Lord. And so in that context, you have the, this back and forth prayer, you have this liturgical greeting of one another, uh, reconciled people reconciled to God will also reconcile to one another by means of this holy kiss, Paul says. And then in 27, um, Paul says, I, I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers, that it's not, it's not just for, you know, a, a select few to whom the letter is addressed, right? When you open up the letter. It's not just for whoever's name is on the envelope. Um, it's not just to the one in whose hand the letter is placed. This is for all the people of God. Read this to all the brothers. So there's, there's uh, the, the sense in which the, the letter is intended to function as, as something read in, in the way that we still, to this day, read the epistles from the lectern publicly audibly to the people of God, and we conclude that saying, this is the word of the Lord, and all the people give their amen, saying, thanks be to God. Paul intends his letter to be read in that exact same way, to be read with the authority of the word of God in the assembly of the people of God. As, as the Holy Spirit gathers them together, they gather to hear the word. Faith comes by hearing and, and hearing through the word of Christ, and part of what God intends them to hear is this letter that Paul sends to the, the church in Thessalonica. Hmm. So the the whole just to, to touch on a few things that you said then, the holy kiss of verse twenty six would be perhaps the predecessor of what we do today as the sharing of the peace more than just saying hello to the people around you but actually a visible sign of the reconciliation that 
each believer has with Christ now being made manifest in the congregation. Is, is that a, a parallel to what we have today? Yeah, I think so. Um, and you're right that this is to be less uh, like a greeting, like, you know, hey, did you catch that episode of our favorite show last night? Hey, I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. How have you been? How's your mother? Uh, it, it is uh, rather the reconciliation between people. So if there's anyone you ought to seek out during that time of the sharing of the peace, it's, it's the one whose hand you want to shake the least. To, and, and to extend a hand to him and to say, we are forgiven brothers, we are forgiven sisters in Christ. Um, here is the peace that I have with my sins forgiven, I extend to you. The peace of the Lord be with you. Um, and, and so that exchange of peace is, is sort of our, our modern day antecedent for the, uh, that holy kiss. We probably shouldn't bring back the kiss in, in our context, but in Paul's context, this would have been a normal sign of greeting between between brothers, right? It, I mean, it right. makes it, it sounds odd to us, but it, right. it would not have sounded odd to the Thessalonians, right? But what he prefaces it with the holy kiss, it's it's removed from the sort of normal societal function. I mean, there are still uh, some Mediterranean cultures where people still will kiss each other on the cheek. Um, as a sign of greeting, that's just not uh, culturally how, you know, North Americans greet one another, typically. Um, but, but so even a, a handshake taken out of the normal cultural way that that's used as a sign of greeting and, and brought into the context of the church is a reconciliation kind of gesture. So... Even even people who, who on the street wouldn't like each other in the church are made brothers and sisters together. So then what about verse 27, to go a little bit deeper then? I put you under oath. I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to who is the you Paul is talking to. Is he talking to the church in general? Is he talking to the pastor? Why Why does he put him under oath to do this? Is that just an indication of the seriousness of the matter, or is there more going on? Go, go a little deeper into verse 27 for us. Well, um, so the, the letter has been addressed to uh, the whole church in, in Thessalonica, so I think there's, that, that's probably the answer to, to the you there, uh, who is put under oath, in order to have the letter read to all the brothers, and, and that is all those who have been made hearers of, of the Word of God. So we do, we do a similar kind of thing. Well, if you think about uh, the vows that we ask people to take at confirmation, or you think about the way the, the table of duties begins with what the hearers owe their pastors. And so these, these are all, like a vow is, is a kind of oath as well. Here, Paul is, he's not making it on behalf of someone else, but rather the, the vows that they have made as Christians and as hearers of the word have bound them to, to share this word of God with, with their other brothers and sisters in Christ. So the, the vows that they've made um, not unlike the kind of vows that we make where we say, um, I, I make this faith my own and I reject everything else, even to the point of death, rather than falling away from this faith, uh, is, a, is a similar kind of oath. And so the, the hearer, the oath of the hearer, the vow of the hearer is first and foremost to, to hear the word. But here Paul says, yes, but not you only, this is intended to be heard by, by all the churches. So, I mean, just practically speaking, there's one letter and multiple congregations throughout Thessalonica, so Paul, Paul makes it incumbent upon them because of their, you know, sort of oath to one another, their, their allegiance to, to Christ and his word, um, to, to share this elsewhere throughout Christendom as well. Hmm. So then, does that does verse twenty seven then 
that's why we would read these epistles too, right? I mean, we would be included in the reading of these letters to all the brothers as well. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair statement. I, I hadn't really thought about that until you were you were saying, you know, you're talking about how we do still read the epistle, and that of the three readings that we normally have in the worship service, that one does stand out, I think, a bit unique from the other two. Of course, we're going to read from the Gospels. This is telling us of the life and words and deeds of our Lord. And and the Old Testament, the history of what God has done in bringing that Savior into the world, these, these two things really often go together. But the epistle does kind of stand out as a bit different often. At least it does, I think, in the in the three-year lectionary. And I'm sure if you, I don't know if you use the, the one or the three, Pastor Hammer, but but it seems often that, that it stands out as a, a bit different. But I think, I think, commands like this really do give a reason as to why we single out a spot for the epistle, because in the history of the church, that's what happened with the epistles. They were very literally read during a gathering of Christians, and perhaps even, and I've I've said this, I know, and I think it's true, but maybe you can tell me otherwise, Pastor Hammer, often these would have been read very similar to what we do as a, a sermon today. That's the place it would have taken in an early Christian worship service. Is that is that true? I don't know that it would have taken taken the place of the the public preaching. Um, it well, if you look at um, you know Acts two, when when all those Christians devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, there's there's a gap between when the apostles' teaching is orally proclaimed and when the apostles' teaching is is written down. So. You know, you have a gap until the first of the the epistles begin to appear, a whole generation after that first Pentecost. So the the people would have the apostles' teaching before then, and and the apostles would proclaim to them those who follow the apostles who have been ordained and placed into um, a similar kind of office. The office of the ministry speaks with a kind of apostolic authority as well, and then, and then you get the emergence of the letters to the churches, which which summarize that apostolic teaching, and so it's being read with a, a similar kind of authority to it, as if the apostles were standing there in in the midst of the people. Paul then concludes this letter with another one of those verses that maybe we just skip over without thinking about it too much, perhaps because we we hear our pastors say something similar to this, whether at the beginning or the end of a sermon. Paul concludes by mentioning, saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's the significance of his closing here, Pastor Hammer? Well, it's a a benediction, and uh, unlike the sort of wish that we might append to to our own letters uh, or our own um, even even saying goodbye um, is kind of a wish that you know you would you would fare well things would go well for you there's there's not a certainty to that when you say goodbye to someone that things will go well for them after they depart from your presence but but here it's not a wish it's it's a blessing Paul to, to conclude everything which he has spoken, blesses them with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that, that in his saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, the people receive the grace of the Lord Jesus. And, and part of his grace, part of his goodness, is that he has sent his apostle, Paul, to deliver his word to his people. Um, and so the, in just in the receiving of the letter is a receiving of the Lord's gift of grace. And in a receiving the, the, uh, the uh, fraternal or the, uh, the paternal kind of care that, that Paul has for the church in, in Thessalonica, they're receiving a, a gift of, of the, the grace of the Lord Jesus as well. And so he speaks that blessing onto them that the grace of the Lord Jesus not not a wish, not I really hope that this grace abides with you, but in the speaking, there is the bestowal of the grace as well. Hmm. Similar to, again, our benediction today, we don't say, may the Lord bless you and right. keep you, or I hope the Lord will bless you and keep you. We say, 
the Lord bless you and keep you. Right. It's it's a blessing. It's a, a declarative act, something that actually happens upon the speaking of it. That's how Paul concludes the letter here. Pastor Hammer, we've got three minutes left here on the morning. Any any points that we didn't bring out that, that you'd like to hit on here at the at the end, or give us a, a summary of what we've been talking about today? I think it's just a, a the the way Paul concludes the letter um, so succinctly is is really just a beautiful end to what what has been kind of a fun letter to to work our way through with this long preparation for a, a great big series of commands and then for for Paul to to step back as as soon as that last command word is issued and then in a prayer to say it's not you who accomplish any of these things that I just told you to do but it is the Lord who wills and works your sanctification and he is faithful and he will do it and if everything depends upon him then look you just keep praying for us as we'll keep praying for you greet one another be reconciled to one another everything sort of flows out of that verse 24 God does it all so enjoy getting to participate in the things that he lets you do pray Pray for your pastors. Pray for those who proclaim the gospel to you. Be reconciled to one another. Read the Word of God and be in the place where the Word of God is heard and the grace of Jesus be with you. It just it wraps it all up beautifully and perfectly and, and in such a sweet, comforting kind of way so that the Thessalonians and now we, as the hearers of that Word, know that nothing depends upon us, but everything depends upon God because He is the one who is faithful. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. Pastor Hemmer, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Everything depends upon God's faithfulness shown to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has won our salvation. He is the one who has declared us just before God, holy and righteous in his sight. And he is the one who accomplishes our sanctification as well, who makes us holy. It is his doing. If it depended on our faithfulness, we would surely be lost. But it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on God's. And he is faithful. You can count on it. He will do it. That's the amen to prayer to Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, the amen to Paul's prayer for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.